The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. If you are just tuning in, we encourage you to go back and listen from episode one. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. To submit a theory, a tip, a question, or comment, please email us at tips at directappealpodcast.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 732-510-0996. Previously on Direct Appeal. Ultimately, I would find out that one of my attorneys was under federal investigation. That's when our defense went on fast forward, the experts dried up, and all of a sudden I wasn't testifying anymore. It turns out that Joe retained someone to prepare the closing for him. Hell, if I had known that, I would have prepared the damn PowerPoint slides. I certainly could have. You just left them with Patty's version of events. And the courthouse was closed for the rest of the day, so the state got all night to rewrite their closing. Her closing was so markedly different and so much stronger. It kind of terrified me. Before you know it, they give the verdict, and I don't remember a lot after that. I expected the worst, and what I got was just one step shy. Parole eligible at the tender age of 101. This is episode 14, Direct Appeal. Melanie is now a convicted murderer. The end of her story? or the beginning of the next chapter. And I remember saying, my kids, my kids. And I don't, I don't really remember much um, after that. I do remember being taken to county. I remember the psych there who I'd come to know fairly well. And he said, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm, I'm going to hurt myself. And he said, do you have a plan? I said, yeah, I'm gonna run and I'm gonna make them shoot me. So that earned me a ticket directly to uh, Ancline, which is a treatment facility for mental health. And I spent two weeks there getting stabilized. I remember waking up the next day, I slept, and I slept handcuffed to the bed. And I remember them giving me a phone the next morning and calling my mother and just sobbing and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, because now all I'm thinking of is, oh, my God, the money, the houses. How are my parents going to pay for all this? Because now all of the properties get released, and now Joe is going to want his $180,000. Oh, my God, my poor grandmother. You know, I start thinking about everything else, and all I remember is, all I remember is calling my mom and saying, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And, and she was crying too, and she was like, honey, but you didn't, you didn't do anything. I said, no, not about, I'm sorry about how this all basically turned out. And it was very, in my mind, kind of fatalistic. It was me like almost saying goodbye. It was, it was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous. And um, months later, I don't know which, I think it might have been Dateline, who knows, that they all did stuff on this. I saw, I was in the county, and we were locked in, but you could see the television from the window, and I looked down, I knew it was on, I couldn't hear it, but I looked down, and I just saw this black and white still of my mother with her, crying with her head on my, my father's shoulder. That just did it. That, that just, if you had told me in the county at that point that, the appeal would have taken as long as it did. It took four years to get a full set of transcripts. If you had told me any of this, that I would still be standing here, going on, starting my 12th year, I, I don't think I would have been here. I don't, I don't think that I could have wrapped my head around it and survived it at that point. I was hanging on by a thread as it was at that point. They kept me in an incline for about two weeks, stabilized me, sent me back to the county. And I mean, I was okay after that. Um, as okay as anybody can, can be. I imagine that happens to a lot of people who are convicted of murder or serious crimes and are facing life in prison. I imagine Innocent a, or not. Innocent or not, correct. That there is a period of suicidal feelings. Yep. And, and I have to imagine this is not uncommon at all. Yep. Another thing she said that we didn't discuss yet is that when she was in county, and this is jail, um, so she hasn't been transferred to prison yet, 
she was able to watch an episode of Dateline and she saw her mother and her father. And I've seen some of those uh, interviews with her mother and father. And they're quite sad, of course. Um, But I don't think Melanie actually participated in the Dateline. She definitely participated in two shows. One of them was The Maguire Diaries, and that was for 48 hours. And I think the second one was a 2020 So I asked her about these episodes and she said that Joe had wanted her to do them. Uh, She agreed to do it because it was from her point of view. And she said, according to Melanie, that Joe's intention was to release them following her acquittal because he still believed this was going to be an acquittal. So can we go back for a minute? The McGuire Diaries, um, for people that have not seen the show, it's her doing uh, pretty much doing a chronology of... What's going on every day when she gets home from trial? Right, right. It's a video diary. That it's she a keeps. video diary, and I don't know about you, Megan, but I don't think this helped her. No, I mean not at the time of the trial. Obviously, it was not released till after the verdict. But as far as the court of public opinion, did not do I much didn't for her. Think the McGuire Diaries helped her. Um, I, it was supposed to be told from her point of view. They asked her to do it this way, her opinion, her feelings, but. And it's available online, I believe. Oh, yeah. You yeah. can get this on YouTube still. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of the Maguire Diaries because I thought it came off. Again, it is her point of view, but it just comes off, you know, about about me. Yeah, and it, it feels narcissistic a little. Um, it cold, did, you know. Yeah, it did feel that way. You know, in one episode she's talking about, I have to make a decision about what I need to mm-hmm. wear tomorrow. It does help you see how small she is, though. Right. No, because I I believe she's wearing a tank top or something in one of the and I or I just remember like her um upper body and I'm looking at it saying, Oh wow, she's really small. You know, she's not very muscular. So it just I remember watching it thinking, she threw those suitcases over? No way. Yeah, that's a good call. It's just it just gives you an idea of more of her stature. I thought the second one was uh, more objective. That was the 2020 Mm -hmm. episode in which they're interviewing her and they're interviewing other people involved in the case. And she's telling her story in that one. And in that one, I mean, I thought that was just fine. I don't know that any of these interviews help people. Um, I don't think so. So I was watching it with my husband who doesn't know a lot of what's going on. And he's thinking alligator tears. She's not, she's crying, but there's no tears there. You know, he was calling bullshit a lot. Right. And that's the part that really sucks, I have to say, about doing these interviews. It's the same thing. It's the same way in which they're looking at Melanie judging her during trial, right? Mm -hmm. She smiles too much. She doesn't smile enough. She's wearing high heels. She's damned if she do, damned if she doesn't. Right. right? So even on the interview, I think it's the same thing. And this is why I don't think it's helpful or it wasn't helpful because people are looking at her going, no, she doesn't seem regretful enough, sad enough. There was also parts where she's not making eye contact. She's looking to the side. So a body language specialist might say, oh, she's lying. But again, we know that's not true. Exactly. So, so yeah. Um, I also don't see why he wanted her to do this, these interviews. I'm not really sure I understand and why. And she said that, she according said, to her... According to her, um, that he thought this would be, you know, these would be great interviews to be released after the acquittal. But knowing... So, my my thought here is he must have known, clearly, that they were going to release these no matter what. Yeah. So, was he... Well, I guess he figured if she was found guilty, if anything, it just gives him more publicity. I actually don't know. I'm not really sure what the purpose here was. I He's actually, very smart. I'm sure there, that this was calculated. I'm just not... I have to imagine so too, but I don't know the reason. I actually thought that most criminal lawyers don't want their defendants to speak at all until yeah. at way after a trial. Yeah. So, okay. So, Melanie was able to see these uh, appearances and this was happening in her first days. She talks about her suicide watch. Does she, I'm sorry. Does she regret doing those appearances? Yes. She does? Yes. Okay. She said that she wasn't really into it. But again, Melanie said that there were a couple things that she didn't really agree with. But according to her, look, I'm not, I'm a criminal defendant for the first time. I'm not an attorney. I followed what my attorney said or what I thought was in, you know, the best advice they were giving me. So mm-hmm. she said that she wasn't crazy about doing these shows. She yeah. didn't really want to do them. But because Joe said, you know, this might be good. Yeah. She went, okay, I'll do yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So Melanie is, this is after the verdict. She's in her first days at jail and she eventually is going to be transferred to Edna Mann facility, which is where she is serving her current sentence. It got to the point, I just wanted to come to prison. I I just, let's just go already. The county's filthy. There's 8 million people in and out. Like, let's just get the show on the road. Sure enough, I got my my wish at sentencing, which I have come to understand is pretty rare. They don't usually take you directly from there, but they did. And it was a melee even getting in here. 
there's a road that leads down to the visiting trailer when you first come to Edna Man, and someone with a sense of humor named it Freedom Road. And when you're driving down Freedom Road, it's very bucolic and tree-lined. Um, anybody who looks at it online, it looks like this old sort of rural college campus. Um, and I assure you, you're seeing minimum non-masks at that point. There was media up and down Freedom Road. And it's funny, one of the cops who was a rookie at the time, he's a sergeant now. And he said to me, I will never forget I was stationed on that road that day. And we had to keep the media out. And I remember thinking, who the fuck is this chick? <laughs> in some ways, it's so much worse than I can ever describe. And in some ways, it's not nearly as bad as people think. But obviously, the hardship on my family, what it did to my parents between that and family court, it, this changes you. This changes you in a way I don't know that anybody comes back from. Okay, so Melanie's describing her first experience, her first days in Edman. She said she was relieved to be transferred there. She's describing what we've discussed once before, which is Freedom Road. Mm -hmm. The irony of that just... It's, well, it's freedom for people going the other way. Right, it is. But for the people going in who aren't going to get out, it's Freedom Road that leads to... Well, maybe it's supposed to like give a little humor to a dark situation. Okay, fine. And um, Melanie's talking about her family as well. And I'd like to say that they, they went through a family court case as well. So they went through family court. They went through this and they are pretty... Civil court, right? Did they not go through civil court? Fa no, family court. Okay. No, I thought it was civil for something else. Okay. Family court for custody issues and then, mm -hmm. you know, criminal court. And they are pretty tough people, I have to mm -hmm. say. They are still standing. Yep. One thing I want to discuss before we move on to Melanie's next steps that I didn't discuss before is the jurors in this case. So Melanie talks about the verdict and being found guilty. At one point, when they were deliberating, and we discussed this on a previous episode, they were deliberating on this issue of anonymous communications. And when Melanie's team found that out, they thought, you know, wow, we're in good shape because if they're debating on this, you know, little stuff, then they must have acquitted her on the big stuff, which we now know wasn't true. So the jurors in this case, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to contact them as well. But in many cases, many of the Dateline episodes and other shows, you'll see that a couple of jurors mm -hmm. will speak. So I contacted... But I none of them had spoken in any of the Datelines or 2020s. No. You're saying in other cases, it's commonplace. Sorry, yes. In other cases, it is commonplace. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen any coverage. And when I spoke with Patty Precioso, the prosecutor, she had asked me, have you spoken with the jurors? And I said, no. And she said, they won't talk to you. And I went, okay, maybe not. Um, does she know something I don't? Yeah. But so I, through a lot of research and a lot of uh, man hours and with the help of a friend, I was able to get a list of the, the you know- All of them? Uh, pretty much all of the jurors mm -hmm. and as much uh, as I could get on recent contact information. So I reached out to them in various different ways. How depending... many did you reach out to? All of them? So there were, I think I, re uh, yeah, I reached out to all of them. Wow. It, there was like 14 at first, I think. Mm -hmm. um, one was alternate. excused. Yeah, so they were excused. So I think I reached out 12 to 14. Wow. All of them, essentially. And I reached out to them via telephone, Facebook, or email. And I received, just so you know, no responses <laughs> from anyone. But one woman answered her telephone when I called and I told her who I was and I'm not going to share her name. I told her who I was and why I was calling. And she was sort of incensed mm -hmm. that I call. I would say she, I, she struck me as being livid that I called. More livid than Patty when you called her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so this is interesting because for me, her energy mirrored what I felt wow. was Patty's energy. I asked, would you speak to me about this? And what she said was, I won't speak to you. And, and she said, not now, not tomorrow, not ever. And neither will anyone else on that jury. And she said it with, you know, mm -hmm. venom sort of. And I said, before I was about to hang up, because, you know, I, I was, okay, I get it. I said, do you mind if I just ask why? I don't understand. And she said, that is between me and the other jurors. Good luck. Click. Interesting. Is that, I, I understand. So there are, you know, typically cases where jurors don't want to participate. They decline. I don't want to talk about this. That's not abnormal. Some jurors yeah. will talk, others won't. What I thought was abnormal about this was the intensity, the anger, the anger that she felt by my even asking about this. And I actually thought it was a little bit strange what she said about that is between me and the other jurors. So what do you make of all this? Because I agree that I think it's weird, but I'm having trouble formulating a hypothesis. 
surrounding why. So here's, I thought about it after and I sat all day and I ruminated on it. And I just don't know, is it right? Am I saying there's something like ominous or sinister going on here? Or is it just, they just made a pact that they would never talk about this? Or I don't know. I mean, part part of me feels like maybe they've had some regrets afterwards and they, you know, they're feeling some guilt and they were just like, you know, we're in this together and let's not talk to press. Like, let's promise each other, like, this is between us, that sort of thing. Yeah, but I felt it was weird. Yeah. I felt it was odd and it bothered me and it still bothers me a little. I agree. And if she had said, you know what, I really don't want to bring this back up. I really don't want to discuss yeah. this. I would have been fine with it. But again, it was she the was way- She was very angry. Yeah, she was I'm very angry. I'm wondering if she received a lot of inquiries. So she was just angry Possibly. that people keep bothering me, but it's been- what, well, she 11 has, years. She hasn't I, received any in a while. I know yeah. that because she was like, she was surprised at first- like, oh, here we go again. It, it was it was clear to me that it had been some time since anyone had contacted her. So that was the jurors. So we want to make it known that we reached out and attempted to speak to all the jurors, but none would speak to us. If anyone, if any juror would like to, please feel free to contact us. We would be very happy to hear from you uh, and we'd be happy to speak with you. Anonymously. Or right? off the record yep. mm-hmm. and anonymously, yep. as Amy said. Yep. So the jury did not speak to us, but the jury deliberated. They convicted Melanie. She's received her verdict. She's been housed at County. She was on suicide watch. And then she was transferred to Edna Mann, which is where she serves her sentence now. So what is the next step in this process? Well, the next step is her appeal. And that's really the next fight. To help us understand the appeals process, because it is a process, we consulted a criminal appellate attorney. His name is John Sekanik. I was a guest commentator twice on this case. And I was with Ron Kuby once. It was great. And then I was with Nancy Gray. She was very nasty to me. She kept mispronouncing my name. I've been practicing criminal law, specializing in appeals and motions for 34 years. And I've handled a lot of high-profile cases. I was on the Asatoro case. That was the Boys of New Jersey um, two-year mob trial. That was 86 to 88. It was the longest federal trial in United States history. And all 20 defendants were found not guilty. And they wrote a book about it, The Boys from New Jersey, and they made a movie about it, Find Me Guilty was the name of it, with, with um, Vin Diesel. I worked on the Lawrence Simmons case for 12 years. He was framed by the Patterson police for the doctor, doctor murder. My client, Lawrence Simmons, said he was innocent from the night he was arrested, and he was convicted and got life. And I won the case, and I got him out. This is, you can see, this is the Simmons case here. This is when I got him out. Simmons free after 23 years. That's me and his family. So John Sekanik is a very interesting person. Yes, and I have lots to, of experience. Listen lots to him. of experience. He's over 30 years in criminal appellate division in New Jersey. He's one of those guys who is 100% into, he's all criminal law all the time. Mm-hmm. I have to say, if I needed an appellate attorney, this would be the guy <coughs> I want to see. Um, we met, actually, I met at his house, but he uses, he has like an office and his mm-hmm. basement is his office. And it's the coolest thing. I mean, he's got news clips everywhere. And I mean, it's like, you know, I could have spent hours probably just looking around his basement. So he's got a ton of experience. Not only that, I actually found him because he did, as he said, he did brief um, commentating one or two days Mm -hmm. on the McGuire trial. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I contacted him and reached out and he was more than happy to help and more than happy to talk to us. And he's had, you know, he's had some very famous cases. You know, he's been in New Jersey. He's done a lot of work. what what was his commentary on Melanie's case? Oh, he's got a lot of commentary. Oh, going I'm sorry. Forward. We'll get there. She's jumping the gun. But sorry. I just, I guess I just wanted you to know who John Sekanik is. Mm-hmm. You know, he is someone who's been around. He knows New Jersey law. He knows the appellate process. He's been in it a hundred times. You'll hear him talk a little bit about his experience. And he talks about, as we go through this process, his experience at the various steps that Melanie is actually going through. So I think he's able to shed a little bit more light on this issue, especially with the technical legal process here. So mm-hmm. um, okay, so the first step for Melanie is what we call the direct appeal. 
a direct appeal. When you lose, you do a direct appeal. And then when you lose that, you do what they call collateral appeal. Collateral appeal is you usually blame your lawyer for ineffectiveness, your trial lawyer, either for ineffective investigation or ineffective trial work or whatever, like in Melanie's case. And then you appeal that <laughs> if you lose. You just keep appealing. See, the way it works in America, you, you have a trial in a law division, Superior Court. That's the, the where your jury has. That's the law division. If you lose, you go to the appellate division and you have two or three judges. They write an opinion. If you lose, you ask the state Supreme Court of New Jersey to take the case. They rarely do. If there's a dissent, if it's two to one, they take it automatically or they have to grant certification. You have to have three of the seven justices say yes. It's a public question of importance. Very rare. If they take it, it doesn't mean you win. It just means you get to go to the New Jersey Supreme Court. So this is the first step, a direct appeal in which she would appeal the issues at trial. So decisions that the judge made in terms of allowing evidence, not allowing evidence, um, allowing someone to testify, not allowing them to testify. So this is the, again, it's the first appeal. And, you know, John is saying, even if you get a hearing, that doesn't mean you win an appeal. It means that they'll actually hear your case or your arguments. And we are going to go through the major issues in her appeal. Did you have a question, Amy? I did. So John talked about three different levels of appeals. Correct. But we're only at the first one we're right at now. First step right now. And I know we'll get there, but looking ahead, Melanie gets through all three. So Melanie is at the third step gotcha. now. Okay. Okay. So the first step is the direct appeal. And she gets a good firm. She's represented by Baker and Botts. They're mm-hmm. a reputable, uh, reputable firm. Her lawyer is, J- her primary lawyer, I believe, was Jamie Kilberg, among others. And I read through the appeal. We have access to all this. And a lot of this is, you know, people can find this online, but um, it was good. Uh, he wrote, a, I think they wrote a very strong appeal. And at this point, her lawyers are still working with them. So, you know, what happens is when someone loses a criminal case, when they move on to the appeal, you get a new team. Your original lawyers don't represent you in the appellate process. However, Joe and Steve were still working with the new lawyers to help them with these issues mm-hmm. on appeal. So there is some lap over Because it here. makes them look good if the case gets appealed. Well, of course. Yeah, it helps. And because they know the, they know the case and the issues. Yeah. So what are the issues? Well, We can't go through every single one, but I'm going to talk about a couple of the significant issues on appeal. So one of the issues in which she challenged was the expert in the garbage bag testimony. So we talked about the garbage bag testimony. Uh, We had two experts. There was Frank Ruiz, and there was also a forensic scientist, Thomas Lesniak. So they challenged it on a couple of grounds, but one of the grounds was specifically that um, Tom Lesniak was not qualified in the area of plastics and that tool mark analysis in which he was versed is a junk science. So I agree with the latter point. I thought he was qualified. Well, the court qualified him and that's what they said. They qualified oh. him. In he didn't have credentials. He's a forensic scientist and he has some, he has training in terms of tool mark analysis, but what her- Not plastics. Right. And that was one of the main, well, the two points. One was that, well, he's not a plastics expert and he really is not a plastics expert. Um, They said maybe he handled plastics in a couple of cases, but that's not his purview. But they qualified him in tool mark analysis and said that he had certifications there and he had worked Mm -hmm. on this before. Um, is tool mark analysis? They, but they, it's they a junk are, science. Do we talk about this? Can you tell the we did. audience we talked what about you mean? it earlier? So a junk science is just a science that is not validated. Um, dog sniff testimony, bite mark analysis. Um, there was, you know, uh, bullet matching. Um, there was that whole thing with the FBI years ago. So a lot of people, uh, I believe it's like a quarter of wrongful convi- or DNA wrongful convictions had junk science, meaning that somebody testified to a science that was later discredited. Right. Um, you know, recently I saw that in the Bundy. Uh, did you watch the Bundy documentary? I did not. Yet? Okay. So in the Bundy documentaries, the, one of the cases in which he was, he realized, you know, his ship was sank mm-hmm. was when they brought someone on to talk about the bite mark analysis yep. and they were, you know, comparing it to his mouth. And yep. later that was highly discredited. Oh, yeah. But in that case, it really weighed heavily with the jurors. And, mm-hmm. you know, they said it and he knew this well, was a it turning sounds point. sounds really fancy because you have someone in a lab coat up there who has all these credentials who is using big words telling the jury that this has to be the same bite mark. I mean, there were cases of wrongful conviction in the Damien Eccles case, I believe. They said it was, you know, human bite marks. It turned out it was animal bite marks. That's right. So there's a lot of issues with this That's stuff. right. I yeah. would take issue with this as well. 
I, I also think they, they said that Frank Ruiz, even though his purview was plastics mm-hmm. and he was an expert and qualified as one, they said that he didn't run the right tests. So okay. they said that he ran some of the initial tests, you know, the eye tests and maybe the sniff test, you would call them. But they said he did not do the right chemical test. Less, uh, I think they had less ground on that one anyway, because he was an expert and would know what test to run. Mm-hmm. He would argue, I ran the test that I knew to run. But um, the court disagreed either way. The court found that this was not, they did not acknowledge this as a point on appeal. So just so the listeners understand, on appeal, you challenge different issues and the court can decide what, if any, they are willing to hear. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Right. So they they definitely said this was not an issue they okay, were willing so to hear. Okay, so the next one. Okay, next thing they challenged. Uh, they just challenged the court's decision not to let Marcy Polk testify. I challenge that as well. That's that's correct. Yeah. That was Bill's former wife. And if you recall, the court said she can testify, but she can't testify about the way in which Bill left her because there was too much time removed. They challenged this and said that, you know, obviously this was ridiculous and that her testimony Very would have relevant. had a serious yeah. impact. Um, the appellate court disagreed. Okay, next. <laughs> they also challenged um they challenged the lack of testimony by George Lowry. If this you recall is huge. Okay, yes. If you recall, he was an acquaintance of Bill who said that Bill told him he wanted a gun but could not get one, but that he was going to have his wife Melanie take care of this for him. And the court said, Okay, we'll let him testify, but the only thing he was allowed to testify to was the fact that I once had a conversation with Bill McGuire about a gun. <laughs> the end. So they took issue with this, obviously, that, you know, he wasn't allowed to say it was the court said or it was hearsay and they took significant issue with this on appeal. Mm -hmm. Now, what happened was William McGuire spoke with George Lowry and Bill, he wanted to purchase a gun and he was not able to because he had a prior criminal record. He was going to have his wife secure that for him. And the court limited a testimony to the purchase of the firearm without specifics. And the defense argued two hearsay exceptions, state of mind and statement against interest. And the appellate division ruled that Bill's alleged statements may have been an expression of his then existing state of mind in January or February 2003, but they were not a clear expression of a present intention or plan to have his wife buy the gun either at that time or in the April 2004 when she bought the gun. So they said, so what, basically? There's no linkage that he wanted her to buy it just because, you know, he, he expressed an interest in needing one or getting one. And so therefore, if it's, if it's a statement against interest, you have to show that it would subject you to criminal prosecution or penalties. That's, that's how the hearsay exception is met. He'd be violating, the, you know, getting his wife to, to help him violate the law of a convicted felon not having a weapon. And they said that wasn't the case here. It wasn't shown. But they also said, quote, even if the original idea came from Bill, that fact did not negate the prosecutor's ballistics evidence, identifying the gun defendant bought with the bullets found in Bill's body, or evidence that the defendant concealed her purchase even after Bill's disappearance and the discovery of his murder. So again, it's kind of like a so what thing. Harmless error, right? So they were pretty much saying it was a harmless error anyway. No, no, they didn't say it was an error. They didn't. No, they're saying even if, so if I'm understanding it correctly, they're saying, number one, it was hearsay, right? So the court wouldn't allow it because they said it was hearsay. Because they said it was hearsay, but it sounds like it's also saying that even if he was to enter it in, it doesn't matter because the ballistics are... Um, strong enough to override it, it sounded like. Yes, but we don't want to use harmless gotcha. error. Because okay, because that's not that's the a legal term. term gotcha. Okay, and that will come into play later. Okay. So, um, but so we'll get rid of that. But come on. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. The ballistics, by the way, aren't even that strong, in my opinion, and yeah. what we've covered here. But the court didn't know that in fairness. Yeah. But come on. This is a guy, again, I, I, was, I was strong on this last time. The court doesn't think this is an issue that this guy who has no dog in this fight is going to say that Bill McGuire told Mm -hmm. me just a few months before the murder that he wanted to buy a gun, but he couldn't. So he was going to ask his wife to buy one. Yeah. This lends direct support to Melanie's contention. This should have been an issue. I I, I agree. This was the court did not agree. The court did not agree. (laughs) So again, they are not granting this issue. They are not going to hear anything more on this issue. There's no, so they're saying no error, no error. Maybe the next one. (laughs) Maybe the next one, Amy. All right. So uh, another issue on appeal here becomes prosecutorial misconduct. So this relates to what we just talked about, about George Lowry, which is kind of by 
why I kind of back them up next to each other. They challenged the prosecutor's argument that George Lowry's statement be excluded because she later argued in summation that Mr. Lowry did not testify that Bill wanted a gun when in fact she knew that that was going to be what he would testify to. Is that misconduct or strategy? So, yeah, um, I, you know, I don't know. Do you mm-hmm. understand the point? Though? I just want to make sure everyone understands yeah. the point. So she argued very adamantly that she knew what George Lowry was going to testify to. So she argued, this is hearsay. We got to keep this out. We got to keep this out, right? And then later in her summation, she says, well, you didn't hear Mr. Lowry testify uh, <laughs> that, you know, Bill wanted to purchase a gun. <sighs> I mean, it's slimy, but is it strategy or misconduct? Well, let's hear what John has to say about it. Summations are not evidence, and the juries are always instructed in the final judge's instructions that summations are only argument and not evidence, and that's why they could get away with a lot. It has to be very bad. I mean, I've won appeals with improper summation, but because of the fact that the juries are always instructed that it's just argument and, and rhetoric and the state's theory, it's harmless error. That's what they always found. And this is what the appellate division held in Melanie's case. Unlike the cases cited in which prosecutorial misconduct was found and defendant's convictions reversed, Lowry's proposed testimony was properly found by the trial judge to be both inadmissible and unreliable. There was no reliable evidence that Bill wanted the defendant to buy the gun for him. So it was harmless in the context of the entire summation. And that's the biggest problem when you're doing an appeal. Nobody's entitled to a perfect trial. You're entitled to a fair trial. The bottom line, and this is the problem for Melanie with this issue, she's convicted. It's a different dynamic than arguing about it before a trial. When you're convicted, again, harmless error is a tough standard to get over. And the jury decided it. You have to really find a bad legal So I just want to make clear that summation is closing argument. Correct. Okay. And they are allowed some creative license in summation Mm -hmm. and the jury is instructed that it's not evidence. So they're allowed more latitude, I would say. So that's why it's considered harmless? Well, it's not misconduct. That's why it's not considered misconduct. Even if I think we described this, but even if it's an error that maybe she shouldn't have said some of the things that she said, the judge found that it was a harmless error, meaning that it didn't impact the ultimate outcome. Mm -hmm. The judge in this, so I will say uh, the judge did take uh, or the appellate, sorry, the appellate court did take issue with some of Patty's uh, summation, some of Mm -hmm. the prosecutor's summation. She made some claims that were not established by the evidence, such as the fact that Bill's body was probably stored in a shower stall (laughs) in ice. Yeah. Or in a refrigerator. Um, she made some claims that Bill would have known to erase his internet history because he was a computer tech. But these issues did not outcome the ultimate decision. And therefore, defense counsel also, I'm sorry, and therefore, they were harmless error. And also what the state argued or later on in, with these issues. So later on, the state gets a chance to respond. And they said, you know, so what if I, if I said this, I was being creative. And you know what? Defense could have objected while I was making these statements Mm -hmm. and they didn't. And that's true. Now, what uh, Melanie had said, uh, I think Melanie brought this up in our interview at one point. I know I asked her about it, about, you know, whether or not Joe objected. And she had said one point, like she was kicking Joe saying object. And he was saying, no, it makes us look weak or it it doesn't make us look good Mm -hmm. to object. And that's just according to Melanie. Um, So... I guess there's reasons, again, trial strategy. Yeah. If you stand up and object, objection, objection, then it looks maybe like you're defensive afraid or a you're little, defensive. Yeah. I'm not sure. But I guess you should be defensive if you're the it's defense, def- right? <laughs> A cheesy joke. Um, so cheesy. But so you're so saying good. the court did take issue with some of Patty's summation, yes. but that's they didn't take enough issue to grant an appeal though. No, they so didn't. So they just said like, yeah, I see what you're saying. They but, said it was harmless yeah. error. Okay. So they said there was some error and that they they thought in a couple instances she probably went a little too far, but mm-hmm. not so far that it impacted the outcome and not so far that they would have a hearing about okay, it. Okay, so next claim. <laughs> next claim I actually think is possibly one that she has um, a stronger case for. Maybe uh, not in this appeal, but Mm -hmm. her next claim was that the jury was exposed to inflammatory media coverage. So what does that mean? Well, some jurors apparently had heard some of the comments described in the media about themselves and discussed it. So I looked at like all the transcripts on Mm -hmm. this and, you know, uh, apparently a couple people had heard, one juror heard that she was being, or she or he was being described as you know, the ones with the the one with the hard eyes or, you know, yeah. they were being described or dubbed some way in the media by certain people. Um, so they had some exposure to that. And remember, 
they're not supposed to be exposed mm-hmm. at all to outside media. And wh- supposedly the defense found um, that there were some blogger comments that they thought came from a juror. But when they later investigated, the prosecution couldn't locate any of them. So either they couldn't locate them or they were removed already. Yeah. Um, there was also uh, an instance where the 14th juror was excused, asked to be excused right at the end because I think she had a flood in her house or something of that mm-hmm. nature, something she had to attend to at home. And she left a note on one of the other jurors' cars. And I guess that, I don't know specifically what the note contained. Um, it was kind of like, I hope you make the right decision mm-hmm. and a couple other things, but apparently some of the other jurors saw it. So they had some exposure to, you know, um, outside media influence. And what happened was that, I guess, the judge questioned them and he was satisfied that they had not knowingly violated the instructions not to seek out media coverage. Um, He also said, well, it's on court TV. It's kind of like it's everywhere. So they might be exposed. Mm -hmm. Um, But he felt that they were still able to render a, a fair verdict. So this is one of those instances, again, this was on court TV. This is a very, very public case. But this is an issue, whether or not, you know, juries are exposed to, are they influenced? Mm-hmm. Are they tainted by some of this? The judge says, no, obviously Melanie's team is going to say, absolutely. So one of the questions we asked, and I asked this of John Sekanik. Again, he's one of these people who, who's done a lot of this. And one of the questions I'll ask you, Amy, is should the judge have sequestered this jury? What do you think, Amy? I think we talked about this a little bit we did in the last briefly, episode. But now that yes. I'm bringing this up on appeal, I just want your yes, opinion. I, th- I think given the fact that it was such a high profile case and that it was televised, yes, absolutely. Okay. Because they've been juries have been sequestered in much um less uh public cases, right? I would say less high profile. High profile, yeah. Less mm-hmm. high profile. Is that a thing? Can we say yeah. that? Less high profile? <laughs> Lower pretty... profile. <laughs> um, okay. So let's hear yeah. what John Sekanik uh, has to say. Would I have had it on court TV? No, because it creates a whole host of possible problems. But none of them were proven. And again, the appellate division went through the instances. And I think they actually subpoenaed court TV about it, the message boards. and they... Would every trial lawyer in the world want it on court TV? Yes. Criminal trial lawyers are, are egotistical. I mean, it's not good to, to be on court TV because, you, you know, you, people are going to be talking about it. And it only takes one person to say something bad. You could have 99 people saying, you know, oh, she's presumed innocent under our Constitution. Don't prejudge it. And then you got one person say something bad that the jury shouldn't hear. So would it, should it be on court TV? No. If it's on court TV, should they be sequestered? Yes. That said, jurors resent that being sequestered. It really screws up your life. Now, in the in the Asaturo case, my you know first big trial, a two year trial, the government told the jurors they were going to be um, for six months. The trial was going to last for six months. They were not sequestered, and uh, it lasted two years. And basically, the jury resented that, that the government had lied to them. The jury, like, hated it. And they found everybody, the whole mafia family, not guilty in 14 hours. There was no meaningful deliberation. It's what they call jury nullification. It was the O.J. Simpson case. In a way, that, that inures to, yeah, she should have said, let's have a sequestered jury. Because if it dragged out, they might have resented the government for that, you know. That's probably who the jury would take it out on. But, you know, this is idle speculation. It's up to the judge if it's televised, correct? As I understand it, it is, yeah. Um, But I think this was a really interesting point, something that I never thought of, because when we were talking about juries being sequestered, I said, yeah, they should have been sequestered. And then John's bringing up a reality that I would never have known, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, sometimes juries resent that and they'll Mm -hmm. take it out on you. And I'm sure Patty knows that, right? Not that it's up to her, but who knows? We don't know what the relationship was between her and the judge, right? We have no idea. We do know uh, in terms of relationships in criminal courts, oftentimes criminal judges and prosecutors will work several cases together. So so. they have a working relationship. So we don't have any idea here. Mm -hmm. I still think I'm still going to go with in the end that um, it should have been sequestered because it was on court TV. Mm -hmm. However, the, the appellate court disagreed. And this is one of the last main issues. And so Melanie lost the direct appeal completely. On ineffective counsel... It's a violation of the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution, which says you have the right to effective counsel. Strickland v. Washington is a 1984 case. It's a two-pronged test. 
First prong, you have to show that trial uh, attorney's performance was deficient and below the normal standard. That's the first prong you have to show. Now, the problem with proving the first prong is almost everything is written off as trial strategy, almost everything. Put her on a stand, don't put her on a stand, trial strategy. Call this witness, don't call that witness, trial strategy. Use this expert, don't use this expert, trial strategy. It's a very broad spectrum under the rubric of trial strategy. That's the first prong. If you win the first prong, that now there's cases where a de- there was a death penalty case, I think, in Texas, where the, the lawyer fell asleep on a trial. <laughs> so they said, yeah, he was ineffective on the first prong because falling asleep is below the normal standard of, a, of, a, of representation if you're asleep. But did he reach the second standard prong, which is prejudice? And to prove prejudice, you have to show that there is a reasonable probability that but for trial counsel's errors, the result would have been different. And they always say no. In Melanie's case, they did not find even a prima facie case that the first prong was met, that her trial lawyer was deficient. And they said, they didn't even get to the second prong, that it wouldn't have mattered. But they do say that repeatedly. They say that it wouldn't have made a difference, all these errors. John is leading us into really our second stage or Melanie's next battle. So stage one is the direct appeal, which she loses. John is talking about ineffective counsel. And that really comes in stage two, which is her next appeal. And that's called the post-conviction appeal. So the post-conviction appeal is a little bit different. The post-conviction appeal typically goes back to the court of the trial. And what you're appealing then are constitutional issues, but the most common, as I understand it, is ineffective counsel. Mm -hmm. So now is where the working relationship between you and counsel is no longer an issue, right? We're not talking about um, Joe and Steve helping anymore because now the claim is that the reason they lost is that Joe and Steve were ineffective. And John is explaining uh, a standard and it's a high standard. You know, what he's saying is, look, this is, I mean, you know, the the court ruled that when a when a, a ju- I'm sorry, the court ruled that when an attorney fell asleep on a death penalty <laughs> case, that was ineffective. So that's a high standard to attain. So now she moves on and she gets new lawyers here. Melanie's been assigned a number of lawyers in this uh, in the post conviction appeal. She began with Lois DiGiulio, who was uh, in the public defender's office, and then she also moved on at one point to Michael Priorone. Um, So in this part, they are focusing on the issue of ineffective counsel. And they raised a number of issues, things that Joe and Steve did wrong or should have done. Um, And so one of the issues that they raised here was that Joe did not call her mother as a witness. We talked about this. We did talk about this. So they're saying that her mother would have provided an alibi witness. And, you know, she would have provided a good one. Now, whether or not that's true or not, again, it's it's a strategy. You know, yeah. he probably thought this is, or they probably thought this is her mother. Of course, yeah, she's going to lie for her. it's hard to say that's ineffective. Yeah, I would say that's a tough one, that's too. That's a strategy. I think that's yeah. a strategy. And that's what John was saying also, mm-hmm. by the way. Everything that they're going to address here is going to be stri- trial strategy. Mm-hmm. Call someone, don't call them. Yeah. Trial strategy. So that was just one issue. Um, a second issue was that Don Zhu was not called as a witness. If you recall, Don Zhu was the neighbor who testified or signed an affidavit saying that she did hear an argument early one morning between a man and a woman. So they said this was an error not calling Don Zhu as a witness. Mm-hmm. Strategy, right? Trial strategy. They yeah. could have argued, look, what would she have done? How would she have helped? She couldn't, you know, say a time. She couldn't say a yeah. date. She couldn't say, uh, you know, all of these things. So was that... But a- she could have introduced reasonable doubt and that's all we needed. I think so. I mean, we talked about this. I think this was a mistake. Mm-hmm. I think they should have called her. Um, by the way, I'm going to go through these issues. I'm not going to go through every single one of them, but I'll hit most of the major points mm-hmm. here. Third was that they should have called the maintenance supervisor. If you recall, the maintenance supervisor of the building where Melanie and Bill worked 
would have testified that, you know, they had to clean the apartment and return their walls to the original white color to receive the $3,000 security back, which Melanie claims was the reason that she cleaned the apartment and had people help her and she painted the walls and not to cover up blood, as the prosecution says. Would this one have made a big difference? I'm not sure this one would have. I think collectively, like all these pieces. throwing all these things out, hoping something sticks? Because I don't think that one's even worth do they really think they're going to win on that point? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they're making the points that are strongest, but also throwing in ones that they think were yeah. sufficient, mm-hmm. you know? I think they're pointing out in general, though, Amy, that, and one of the complaints was that Joe didn't call enough witnesses mm-hmm. to support Melanie's story. And I don't think they're incorrect there. Um, so this was one of them. One of the next issues they addressed, they said that Joe did not retain, Joe, and I say Joe, I mean Joe and Steve, so the defense, Mm -hmm. they did not retain a forensic accountant or other forensic experts. So they didn't retain anyone for the crime scene to dispute. And we spoke with Jim Barone about Mm -hmm. the crime scene and he was able to discuss all of the ways in which the prosecution's theory really didn't hold water. And he would have been, you know, mm-hmm. a similar type would have been a great expert. Um, uh, uh, they're saying, you know, that they didn't call a forensic accountant. Again, I agree with that one. We talked about these, you know, the these gaping disparities in the accounting and these huge deposits and huge withdrawals and gambling records. So why didn't they call a forensic account? Why didn't they get a forensic accountant? I think that's a huge issue. So I think so too. Um, so again, I think their their biggest issue here was that they didn't call enough expert witnesses. Mm-hmm. And so they also said, you know, Sally Ginter was a plastics expert, right? But she didn't come because they found her. Um, or I'm sorry, they didn't go out and actively find her. She was someone who was watching the trial and called in and said, hey, I can help you. Mm-hmm. But so they didn't retain a forensic accountant. They didn't retain their own medical examiner. Um, they did retain, but someone who wasn't very helpful was a ballistics expert. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they thought he was the right ballistics expert mm-hmm. in the end uh, and didn't address the proper issues. They didn't retain anyone who could speak to the crime scene. So the issue here is that there were a lot of missed expert witnesses that they could have used that they did not. And why did they not use them? Let's move on to the next point, right? <laughs> well, okay. So this is part of it as well, right? So in the in the complaint, they are alleging that Joe did not call some of these or Joe possibly did not call some of these expert witnesses because of a change in their retainer agreement mid-trial. So what happened is, and as we know, these trials are extremely expensive and you run out of money. So at some point um, in the trial, Joe changes the agreement to say that he's going to assume all the costs until the end of the trial. Um, Melanie's point later on, and at the point at the time she said, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's on trial for her mm-hmm. life. So she said, I'm going to agree to anything, you know? And she's saying later on that that basically is creating an interest. If he has to pay for everything, he's not going to call any witnesses. He's not going to call any experts. But I, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because at the end of the day, he wants to win as much as Melanie wants to win. Would you agree? He wants to win for sure. Uh, but there's, I guess she's saying he's got to balance the financial... So would he, uh, we don't know. What's more important to him, winning or finances, right? I'm sure that winning was Mm -hmm. certainly important. I don't think that's, you know, in dispute. Uh, Winning was definitely important, but maybe he felt, you know, that he had done enough because he did a very good cross-examination and he had discredited their case. Mm -hmm. But would he have felt that way if he had more money to spend? If he could have thrown more money at Mm -hmm. that, would he have felt that way? So Melanie says that creates an interest for him to cut down on experts. The court, uh, I guess the court disagreed. Here, Judge Ferencz specifically found that there is no legal authority that the supplemental retainer agreement created a conflict of interest. Now, the argument obviously would be that if you pay for the experts, it's going to diminish your fee. So that's the inherent conflict. So you would be likely to not do that. He found there's no legal authority. So that's a problem when there's no legal authority. There was another case he cited which was distinguishable. And he also found that the supplemental agreement was on March 9th, 2007, when the trial was already underway. And he said discovery was complete and the witness list was complete. So he said that there was no certification from the trial attorney that 
additional experts were needed and that additional experts had to be paid for. Now, how was Melanie going to get that? I mean, you know, how would she have known? There should have been a hearing and the, the, the trial attorney should have been asked by, you know, the PCR counsel, you know, did you broach this with the client? Because the judge says, well, he should have submitted a certification. What lawyer is going to submit a certification that's against his interest? The problem is that's the record now. And this that's what this judge found. So this is kind of an important point, just so you know. Um, John was actually saying that he was surprised that the judge did not want to hear from the attorney on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, he thought at the very least they were going to say, you know what, we're going to talk to Joe on this one yeah. or Steve and see what the, you know, what was the deal with this? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no authority on it, but it's kind of a, a gray area. But the judge didn't. They, they said, no, that, you know, they just didn't want, they didn't grant a hearing on this issue. And so... Ultimately, um, we have one more, uh, you know, one or two more issues and one of them we've already discussed. And they said that Joe should have or that Joe failed to sequester the jury, which Mm -hmm. I would have to agree with as well. I think that should have been a request. But in the end, Melanie loses the PCR. She loses this post-conviction appeal. She has a very uphill battle procedurally. And her biggest problem is that she lost the appeal in a published opinion and she lost the PCR without an evidentiary hearing. And unfortunately for her, that was affirmed on appeal by the appellate division without you know, a remand for an evidentiary hearing. Usually, especially with the issue about her trial lawyer, not calling witnesses, not getting experts, um, why he redid the retainer agreement, usually they would remand that and say, explain it, explain why you change things. Explain why you didn't go to the public defender's office for ancillary services, because they could have done that. They could have asked the public defender to pay for the experts. I'm sure Melanie McGuire didn't know that, that she could have had the public, because nobody knows it. But that could have been done. Now, I'm sure her trial lawyer probably didn't broach that with her, because she certainly would have said, yeah, go ahead. If money's a problem, ask the state to pay for my experts. So you would have thought that the PCR judge would have said, let's have, let the lawyer explain. Did he tell her? Why didn't he tell her? Why didn't he go for ancillary services? But that wasn't even done. And it was affirmed on appeal. If she had had an evidentiary hearing and her attorney testified in a way that was clearly frivolous, even though if the judge said, well, you know, it, it might not matter, at least she would have a record of that. She doesn't have a record of that. And it's very unusual for a federal judge to order an evidentiary hearing in a habeas. It can't it can happen, but it's very unlikely. So what he's saying now is that, I mean, this, the last decision or that one issue, because they didn't hear it, it's pretty bad. So now her record is that she's lost her direct appeal and they didn't want to hear any of the issues. And she's also lost her post-conviction appeal. And when you say it doesn't look good, it doesn't look good when she goes to the federal system. Correct. Because that's where we're at now. This is the last step and that's the federal system. And I just want to clarify, a PCR is post-conviction review, right? Post-conviction relief. Relief. Okay. Because he kept saying PCR, so. Right. We use the, the what is it, the acronyms a lot. He uses it in his yeah. world. It's okay. PCR. Yep. But so he's saying now, uh, now she's moving on, okay? This is the last step. And just so everyone knows, this is actually where Melanie is right now. She's in the federal system. So when did she, when did they submit? When did she submit to the federal system? Yep. So she submitted her first, um, I believe she submitted it about six months ago. And what's the average wait time? Any thought? Like I'm wondering when she's expecting to hear back. Are we talking a year, five years? I mean. Not five years. I'd say closer. I don't know what the exact time yeah. is, but I'm going to say about it. I'm sure it. there's no exact time either, right? I'd say about a year, uh, probably about a year, yeah. maybe okay. a year or less. Mm-hmm. So she's in the federal process now. Um, and Hopeful? Should she be hopeful or is she hopeful is both. the question. I'm actually curious of both. Melanie has maintained what I would call a pretty positive attitude, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, she speaks of things realistically, but she's also, I don't know, she's oddly optimistic, I would say. You know, okay. she's, maybe that's all, you know, maybe it's like all she has, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what, do you, what what's the alternative, I guess? Yeah. Woe is me and no one's going to care, but yeah. I would say she's optimistic. Okay. Um, so where she is now, again, we are in the federal system. In order to prevail on a federal habeas petition, Melanie McGuire must now show that the state court action is contrary to or involved an unreasonable application of clearly established law by the United States Supreme Court. So that would be 
you know, violation of the Strickland Fritz prong in effective counsel. Um, so it's a very tough thing. Again, it's contrary or involved unreasonable application of clearly established law. So as long as it's reasonable what these judges did, she loses. So it's it's a tough standard for everybody. It's not just her case. It's a nuanced thing. As long as, long as the procedures are followed, that's all that has to be done. Very subjective. It's very subjective, yeah. of course. Yeah. So with the federal system, the first step, there's three courts. There's the district court, there's the circuit court, which is their version of an appeals court, and then there's the highest court, which is the Supreme United and States Supreme it. Court. Court of last resort. That's it. Court of last resort. Got it. Um, so she's at the district court and her judge is Judge Ship, and he'll make a decision on whether or not to hear the case. Um John said that Judge Ship is one of the best judges. So he said on a positive note, you know, this is, a, she, he said it a number of times that she's got a really tough road. This is not mm-hmm. an easy feat. It would be very rare to prevail on these grounds. You know, the odds aren't good. I asked him if this process is a fair one. So is this fair? Yeah, because you get, you get a lot of bites at the apple. You get your direct appeal. You get the state Supreme Court to possibly take it. You get a PCR court. You get a PCR PO. You get a PCR Supreme Court. You get a federal court. You get a federal Third Circuit. You get a United States Supreme Court. So you got like nine shots at the apple. A lot of it is arbitrary. And I, I you know, anybody who's intelligent and, and says, you know, we should have a good system of justice, it depends on the judges you get. Because I, I, I've won cases this last year that I thought I couldn't win. And I've lost cases I thought I had to win or I had to at least get a DNA hearing. So you just don't know. It depends on, on the judges and you have to uh, just keep fighting and going on and on and on. She is going to have a problem, though, because of the uh, the standard that, you know, is going to be applied now. And the fact that she's had several bites at the apple. So John says that he thinks it's a fair process because there's kind of nine bites, what he's saying. And really, that means there's three stages, those three, you know, steps we talk about. And in each stage, you get three tries. Mm-hmm. But so I think about this. He described the, you know, the standard by which you have to meet for ineffective counsel is basically your lawyer falling asleep. So I'm like, well, yeah, you get nine tries, which seems like a lot. Yeah. But it's kind of like me getting nine tries to make that, you know, half court shot, at like, mm-hmm. you know, a pro basketball game. I could get 90 tries. Yep. I'm not making that shot. Yep. Doesn't matter. So yep. If the odds are low, they're low. I'm saying if it's, you get a lot of tries, but yeah. it's an unattain, almost unattainable standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this still fair? Yeah. Uh, John also, he added a little bit. Uh, so he added his thoughts on, you know, murder and, you know, what your odds are, how you're, how a person is going to, you know, prevail. And he talks specifically about murdering your spouse. Obviously it wasn't a mob hit because the mob isn't going to, the mob isn't going to drive the Chesapeake Bay if the guy owed money. That was preposterous. You know, the mafia, they would just leave the body where it is. Okay. She thought it out. Evil genius thinks it out. Mario, Professor Moriarty thinks it out. Professor Moriarty says, I, I got to have no crime scene, no body, no weapon, no admission. Those are the first four fundamental. I tell everybody, if you're going to kill, don't kill your wife. Don't kill you. Don't do it. I tell them, don't do it. But if you're going to do it, no body, no weapon, no crime scene, no admission. So she had no weapon. So, you know, if they don't find the weapon, it doesn't matter. Not, they can't link her by and there's no weapon. They have to find the body. So she had that on her to-do list, obviously, chopping up and putting in three suitcases and Chesapeake Bay. That her, The point was never finding the body. Again, you always make one mistake, always. That's what I tell people. You know the old movie Body Heat? Mickey Rourke says, you told me, for every decent crime, there's 50 ways to be get caught, and you got to be a genius to think of 45 of them. And you ain't no genius. So, I mean, there's always something wrong. So, I mean, she was doing a checklist and she didn't think the weapon was going to be an issue. If they didn't find a body, it would not have been. So, John's last thoughts on (laughs) why Melanie is where she is. Um, But in all seriousness, we are at the end of the legal process for now. So now Melanie does await the decision of this court. She awaits Judge Have you spoken to her? Is she very nervous? I know you said she's optimistic. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's nervous. This is a big one. This is it. No, this is huge. I yeah. mean, this is really huge. And they're all huge, right? Because yeah. every time, you know, if you lose this, she can still appeal that decision. And then I guess the, I, he was, John explained the process much better than I could, but I think he was saying basically the circuit court could overrule yes. yeah. and, and grant a hearing, I think, or judgeship yes. could reconsider it. But still, at every every time you yeah. lose, you're running out. The, the clock is ticking and you're running out here. Um, but this is where we're at now. Um, so Melanie's in prison. Now she's been there for approximately 12 years. Mm-hmm. And she has discussed, you know, the impacts that this has actually had on her family and, you know, where her family is now. And um, at this point, her children or since her incarceration, her children were raised by Bill's sister, Cindy. And, you know, she, Melanie talks about the um, impacts that this have had, you know, this has had on her family. Her family still believes in her innocence. They stand by her, but it's had a devastating impact on them. We have no money. We have no money. We spent every single cent of everything we ever had, a good $500,000, I would say, on this. I mean, what were we going to do? We have a daughter with two little boys. And Henry Klingerman kind of summed it up. He said, you have to look at this almost like it's a major illness in your life. What would you do if you were suffering from a major, you know, major illness? You're going to sink everything. And my husband gave everything, everything. We did everything. So where was he murdered? That's what I want to know. My daughter, if my daughter had shot him, she would have been standing there with the gun, like falling out of her hand, screaming and crying. First of all, she wouldn't even know. We've never had guns We don't know anything about guns, but to do what they said was done to him. There is no way, no way. I know her. I brought her up. I gave birth to her. There is no way she would ever do that to the father of her children either. She would never do that. Never. Because those boys are living with that every day now. Not my daughter. No way. No way. I think they zeroed in on Melanie. They didn't look anywhere else. And I think it was just the old case of let's just solve this case. And it's it's funny and it's not funny. But when Melanie had um, she met a girl in prison whose mother was a U.S. marshal at one of the visits, the girl's mother said to her, you know, it's not about who's innocent or guilty. It's about a notch in your belt. And that's a terrible t- thing to, th- to think that our, our system is like that. But a lot of times it is. It's where you're going, how you're going to get there, the heck with the person. And that's exactly what I think a lot of it was. I really do, personally. I think it's a, it's a, it's a waste of a very, very intelligent, giving person that's in jail right now. I just want to point out here how she's talking, she's talking about tunnel vision, right? When she said the prosecution, they only looked in one place. And that's the theme that I keep seeing is, you know, they didn't investigate anyone else. That was, to me, one of the major issues. Well, we certainly don't know if they did because no one has been willing to speak with us as True. well. Um, remember, so as far as the public knows, right? As, as, pu- as far as yeah. we know and the yeah. public knows, we don't know what they looked into or what they did not. Um, but that is really why we are now going to turn to our audience and to our listeners. Mm-hmm. And we are asking for your help as we have the whole time. Mm-hmm. If you have any information about the evidence that we've discussed throughout the season, we would love for you to submit it to or email us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. We also would like to hear from you um, about your possible theories or alternative theories about what happened to Bill McGuire, whether or not they support Melanie's guilt or innocence. Um, we would love to hear from you at the same email. And what we're going to do is we're going to collect all of the evidence that you submit and um, we're going to review all of it. And on the last episode, we are going to reveal our conclusions based on this investigation along with yours. And this really brings us to the end. And now we're going to take a hiatus so that we can follow up on your tips, which we thank you for sort through new information, conduct additional interviews with people who've come forward and volunteered to help, and explore potential alternative theories. We will return in the beginning of October with our final conclusions. In the meantime, you can look out for the Q&A with Melanie, part two. You all had so many great questions that we have an entire new episode to bring to you. Thank you very much for listening and supporting Direct Appeal. And thank you for those of you who have written in with questions and possible tips. 
we appreciate it. And we encourage anyone else who has any information about this case to do the same. Direct Appeal is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. The story arc was written by Megan Sachs. Music and underscore by Dessert Media. Recorded, mixed, and edited by Justin Crowell at JC Studios. Special thanks to Alan Tuckerman, whose work was integral to this production. To view photos, evidence, and engage with other listeners, visit directappealpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by leaving a five-star review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen. We met Stephen Pacheco of Trace Evidence Podcast this year at CrimeCon. His podcast, released once a week, focuses on unsolved murders and disappearances. He does a great job at breaking each case down and providing as much information as possible. We are big fans of his work. Here's a trailer for Trace Evidence. Hey, this is Stephen Pacheco, the host of Trace Evidence, a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and disappearances. Each week, I explore a different unsolved case and take a deep dive into the victim, the events leading up to the crime, every fact we know, every question we're left with, and then a breakdown of the most popular theories revolving around that case. Each Monday, a new episode comes out, and there are more than 80 episodes of mysterious and fascinating cases to catch up on, some you've heard, and many that you haven't. If you're drawn to deep examinations of some of the most mysterious cases, give Trace Evidence a listen. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcatchers. Visit trace-evidence.com for more information. And I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence.